Unbelievably, a collection of 66 books last edited sometime in the 4th century AD is still the world's number one bestseller. The Bible has been flying off bookshelves for centuries. Now you probably already know quite a lot about it. It's part of our culture. We've all seen priests on TV reciting Hail Marys. We've watched The Da Vinci Code and marvelled at all the conspiracies around the private life of Jesus. And who hasn't been to a church wedding and listened misty-eyed to Paul's homage to love, written to the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth? It's easy to pigeonhole the Bible as a book for the religiously minded, but it's for all of us. It's our book. It's part of our language, whether that be casting pearls before swine or girding our loins or the blind leading the blind. Our colleagues are called Rachel and Hannah and Josh. We live in cities called St Petersburg, Christchurch and Los Angeles. Our laws are based on its laws. A huge number of our schools, universities and hospitals exist because of it. There's also a credible argument that much valued principles such as human rights, equality and social justice owe their existence to its pages. Put simply, the Bible is the most powerful and influential book that has ever been written. But the Bible can be a little bit overwhelming. We live in an age of instant access to information that is often sourced via social media and online search. So a leather-bound volume containing 66 books within its flimsy gilt-edged pages feels like a leap back to another century. Often buried in the religion shelves of bookshops or mouldering at the back of ancient churches, the one thing a Bible doesn't yell is read me. Even the most modern Bibles can be a barrier to the non-religious. Publishers assume that the reader is a Christian who's approaching the book in a worshipful and reverent manner, hoping for nuggets of truth to apply to life. And then there's this. The Bible isn't a book with a plot that slowly develops as you move through it. The chronology is all over the place. Several books repeat what has already been said earlier. The Bible is famous for its stories, but those who read it cover to cover realise that barely a quarter of its books actually contain stories. There are genealogies and lists of laws which can seem endless. Much of the content, particularly in the Old Testament, can lack the kind of literary flourish that is expected of a bestseller that might be published today. Add to that its attitudes towards women, homosexuality and slavery, and for many, this is a book that belongs back where it was first begun, sometime in the late Bronze Age. For this reason, Bibles remain the property of the already converted. Those without faith are confronted with what seems like an impenetrable mass of chapters and verses, filled with unpronounceable names and dense theology. But the original Bible wasn't written for academics to pick apart. It was pulled together by the people, for the people, to explain where they believe their journey began, where the planned destination is, and how they might all get there. So think of this podcast as a road trip. I'm going to take you on a leisurely and hopefully entertaining ride through the entire book, pointing out why certain bits are here, who wrote them, and how they've inspired the culture. Where some parts seem obscure, contradictory or controversial, I will attempt to unpack them a little, trying hard not to take sides. At no point will you be told what to believe. There are a ton of podcasts that can do that. This 
is the Bible minus the religion? Now, that may be confronting to some religious people, but my hope is that you listen with an open mind. The Bible isn't just your story, it's our story too. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, Episode 1, Darkness Over the Deep. A couple of points before we begin. Firstly, the Bible I refer to is the New International Version, UK edition. Secondly, I'm not a theologian, nor am I a priest. I'm an advertising creative director. But, seeing as the Bible underpins three major world religions, this is a book that has a lot to sell. Like football, the Bible is a book of two halves, or, to put it more mathematically, a book of two-thirds and a third. The Old Testament contains 39 of the Bible's 66 books, 46 or more if you're Catholic or Orthodox. These books mainly concern themselves with the history of the Jews, some poetry, and plenty of warnings and predictions about the future which the Bible describes as prophecy. The New Testament, on the other hand, deals exclusively with Jesus Christ, a man whose life, death and afterlife appears to be predicted by many of the writers in the Old Testament. The Bible's opening book is called Genesis, which takes its name from the Greek word meaning origin. Genesis quickly introduces the character who dominates the entire Bible and features in all but two of its 66 books. Seen by billions as the guardian of moral justice in the universe, it's hard to contemplate the creation without at least the most basic understanding of God. Popular culture may depict him as an old man with a bushy white beard, but outside of cartoons and greeting cards, biblical God is more a benign but all-powerful force. God is the creative power who speaks the cosmos into being and attempts to maintain a relationship with the people who he created. Old Testament God is exclusively Jewish and is known as Yahweh, spelt Y-H-W-H in the original texts and translated as Lord in capital letters in modern Bibles. God is also known by a number of names including Adonai, Elohim and El Shaddai, as well as the Almighty and the Ancient of Days. He's seen as the divine creator who exists before there is earth and sky and who will continue to live forever. It is this God whose creative power is witnessed in the first few pages of the Bible. The book of Genesis has a greater variety of content than any Old Testament book, containing some of its most famous stories. It is here that Adam and Eve fall out of favour with God for eating forbidden fruit and are rejected from the Garden of Eden. It is here that Noah rescues his family in a ship full of animals and floats on floodwaters for over a year. It is here that readers are introduced to Nimrod and Methuselah and the Tower of Babel. Here that Abraham prepares to sacrifice his son Isaac and here that Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt for watching the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis is where Jacob tussles with Esau, sees a ladder leading to heaven and wrestles with an angel. And it is here that Joseph dreams, receives a fabulous coat from his father and is sold into Egyptian slavery by his brothers. The book covers a vast time period, from the creation of the universe to the arrival in Egypt of Joseph's family. 
Throughout its pages, God is seen to ensure that good things happen to the people who follow him, while bad things happen to those who turn their back on him, which is pretty much the thrust of the rest of the Old Testament. Genesis is the Bible's greatest storybook, filled with heroes and villains and good battling evil. And it makes it very clear to its readers that God has expectations for the people he has made and big plans for where he's going to take them. So, we know that Genesis means origin, and the Bible sensibly chooses to kick off with the origin story for life on Earth. Critics of the Bible account argue that the Big Bang might have come about through any number of random sequences. But, many are convinced that something both as vast and intricate as the universe must have had some kind of creator pressing the buttons. Biblical creation is a simple story of how, over a busy seven-day period, God makes something out of nothing. Before the show begins, there's an infinite expanse of empty space. Genesis describes the earth as formless and empty, and it is entirely covered in deep ocean. Over this water, the Spirit of God hovers. It is still very dark, and so God creates light, uttering the words used by any joker who's ever changed a light bulb, let there be light. God calls this phenomenon day and continues to call other elements of creation into existence using just his voice. The day has a morning and an evening and for the rest of the week the creative project is measured in days. Day two is spent assembling the sky which enigmatically divides the water below it from the water above. This water above has caused much chin-stroking among Christians who remain unsure of what or where it is. The ancient Hebrew view of the world is that rain falls from a body of water above the sky and that this is the water which, when released later on in the book, causes Noah's flood. On the third day, the waters and dry land are separated from one another and God introduces vegetation, carpeting the earth with grass and trees. Day four sees the arrival of the sun and the moon, the two great lights that mark the days, months and years, and which separate day from night. On day five, the first living creatures arrive. Birds take to the air and fish fill the seas. These are followed on day six by both wild and domestic animals and all creatures that crawl over the earth. Day six is a busy day for God. He creates man and woman, making sure they are made to resemble him, and he puts the first couple in charge of all the animals and plants on the planet. Now, the Latin for being made in the image of God is imago Dei. The thinking is not so much that Adam looks like God, but more that people are on a higher level than all the other things that God has created. Thanks to this special status, they are able to reason, and they can appreciate and understand God. Art lovers will know that the most famous depiction of God creating Adam in his own image is the early 16th century fresco by Michelangelo that adorns the ceiling of Rome's Sistine Chapel. After he has created them, God blesses the first couple, a biblical term that means he gives them his seal of approval. He sends them off with instructions to be fruitful and increase in number, recorded in older Bibles as go forth and multiply. Science and the fossil record have led to many Christians questioning the creation along with much of the early part of the book of Genesis. However, the thinking remains that if someone or something ignited the creative spark, why not God? 
Also, the sequence of creation in the Bible is sea, dry land, birds, land animals, then people, which, aside from the stars appearing after there is already vegetation, pretty much matches the geological running order. All of which leads us down a proper wormhole. So, let's cut to the elephant in the room and deal with it as best we can. While some Christians follow the general vibe of the Bible, others believe every letter of it, including the parts like this one that tell us the earth as we know it was created in one calendar week. Creationists, as these Christians are known, sing to their own tune, and proudly so. The theory here is that the Bible is the literal word of God, that every letter was dictated by the Almighty to scribes on earth who wrote each word down perfectly. As such, creationists believe in a concept known as the inerrancy of scripture, or the impossibility of anything in the Bible being untrue. This is why they believe that the earth was formed by God in six 24-hour days in the exact sequence written down in the book of Genesis. Young earth creationists go one step further and claim that the earth was formed in 4004 BC, a theory first put forward by James Usher, Archbishop of Armagh, in 1650. Young earthers roundly reject the idea of evolution, which they see as theory, not science, and question scientific methods, which they see as blinkered and prone to error. These believers are an easy target for humanists, atheists, and others who prefer a more scientific approach to the world's origins. They argue back that a Christian who believes in miracles should also be able to believe that the earth was created in seven days. After all, if Jesus can turn water into wine, why can't God build an entire universe in a week? The beauty of creationism is that it requires no thought. It's belief without questioning, and the responsibility is on secular scientists to prove how creation actually happened. So far, that's not something that they've been able to do. In the meantime, thousands of internet hours are taken up with creationists and their detractors debating radiocarbon dating, tree rings, and how Einstein's theory of relativity is an unreliable way of determining how far away stars are from Earth. Surprisingly for some, creationists can be scientists too. Raymond Damadian, inventor of the MRI scanner, is an outspoken young Earth creationist. That said, creationists remain the fuel that fires up many atheists. So when an atheist talks about Christian belief, it is often fundamental creationism that they are railing against. The good news is that neither creationists nor more progressive Christians are excluded from being part of the church, which today is incredibly broad. Both will no doubt continue to look at the other with a mixture of pity and love, until, if what the Bible promises is true, there is a final judgment at the end of time, when one of them will know that they were right all along. So, after an epic six days, God takes a day off. This is not because he is tired. God doesn't get tired. He rests because his work is done. He blesses day seven and sets it apart from other days, a concept that eventually becomes known as the Sabbath. The impetus behind the creation is a positive one. God is pleased with everything that he has made. Life on earth gets the green light and the paradise he has created is humankind's to lose. According to Genesis, everyone alive today has one particular couple of ne'er-do-wells to thank for their existence. The story of the first man begins well enough. The earth has been created, but there's still no vegetation as it hasn't yet rained. 
Ah, but you say, no vegetation. Didn't we just hear that God introduced vegetation on day three? Well spotted, and herein lies another puzzler. The first of many in the long and fabulous journey that is the Bible. Creationists are quick to iron out the contradiction. Only some vegetation arrived on day three, they say. Or it could be that the account of Adam and Eve was written by a different author to the account of the creation. Other Christians, who see the early chapters of Genesis as a bit of a grey area, suggest that the story is more a fable or allegory and that the message is more important than the details. In the Genesis account, God calls up rivers to irrigate the land and forms a man out of the dust of the earth. He breathes life into his nostrils and the man becomes a living being. Readers are told that the place where the first man is created is a garden that has been planted by God. The precise size of this garden and most of the individual plants within it are not recorded, although readers are told that it is in a place called Eden, which is in the east. The garden contains an abundance of trees that are pleasant to look at and plenty more which provide food. Its two most important botanical features are the tree of life, which gives eternal life to those who eat its fruit, and the succinctly named tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the tree which brings about self-awareness. Some Bible brains believe that the fruit from the tree of life allows Adam and Eve to live indefinitely so long as they keep eating it. Others suggest that the tree was planted by God and so its fruit offers the couple a regular reminder of the one who created them and gave them life. A river flows through this bucolic glade and then splits into four headwaters. Readers are told that the Pishon winds through the country of Havila, famous for its gold, aromatic resin and onyx. The Gihon flows through what is now Sudan and though these two waterways have yet to be located, the Tigris and Euphrates continue to flow south to the Persian Gulf. The rich, fertile agricultural country between these two rivers is known in Bible times as Mesopotamia, quite literally the land between the rivers, and it is here that many of the stories in the early part of Genesis take place. God appears to have put the man in the garden for a purpose. He is to look after it and may eat the fruit of any tree he likes except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eating from this tree will bring about his death. According to the story, God doesn't want the man to be on his own and so he brings him all the animals and birds which he's created and allows him to name them. It is only now that the man is given a name himself, Adam. However, no suitable companion can be found for him in the garden and so God needs to pull off one final act of creation. He sends Adam into a deep sleep, removes one of his ribs and uses it to make a woman. The biblical account of Eve's creation has led some to believe that men have one fewer rib than women. This is untrue. Most people have 24 ribs regardless of their sex. The woman, who's yet to be named, is brought to Adam and he clearly approves, calling her bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Readers are told that this is why a man leaves his parents to be united with his wife and the writer adds that the first humans are naked yet feel no shame. Eden is also home to a wily serpent, the Bible's first villain. Evil has crept into paradise. The first couple are woefully unprepared for his tricks and put their trust in his silver-tongued sales pitch. 
The consequences are disastrous for them. And the Bible sees what happens next as the reason why humankind will forever be flawed. Their story is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, for Sleeping Dog, with music by Michael Old and additional production by Johnny Hawkins. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Send any comments and feedback to contact at holybible.com.